Well, good morning and uh, welcome to Renaissance. My name is Chris and it's good to have you all here today. And we uh, are starting a brand new series titled Saga. And if you're a guest with us, I just want to uh, let you know you can go to renaissancechurch.org, click on messages and there you can watch, download, share uh, all of our weekend messages. And uh, there's also a discussion guide that you could use this personally with a group of people. It's just resources for you. And also during service today and all week long, you can go to this link right here renaissancechurch.org forward slash notes, and you can kind of follow through some of the, the core uh, pieces of the message and core scriptures, and again, just another resource for you, especially if you get to the midweek and you're like, what was that verse and where was that found? It's there available uh, for you. Well, uh, stories has been just an essential part of cultures from the beginning of time. Uh, archaeologists have found these fascinating drawings on, uh, on cave walls in Australia, and as they've learned about these drawings on, their ca- uh, on the cave walls, they've uh, uh, discovered that the Aborigines would have someone drawing these drawings, but yet it wasn't just about drawings on a cave wall. They would have people singing while someone's drawing, and then they would have people dancing as they were drawing, and, and someone was telling the story as people were singing and dancing and drawing. It was like the first Broadway show ever, right, in a cave. And, uh, but it was a, a, a core component of their culture. The Greeks and Romans were avid storytellers. The first historian, Herodotus, right? He's this great historian, kind of. How much was history and how much was it his version of history? Voltaire said it best, that Herodotus was the father of history and the father of lies. The Vikings were great storytellers. They scripted these sagas that were actually accounts of their voyages about setting sail into uncharted waters, finding uh, new cultures and new lands and new peoples and their conquers into those lands. Sagas were about uh, mighty kings that conquered new lands, but also we find that their sagas written by Benedictine monks. And what was going on in the spiritual world during that time period? My wife and I had an opportunity uh, to go see a new Broadway show called Big Fish. And, uh, you know, there's something about stories, why people love Broadway. It's this whole medium to tell great stories. And I found myself going, and uh, if you're not familiar with the storyline of Big Fish, it's really about Edward Bloom, a father, and his son Will told in this epic kind of production around storytelling. And so I found myself getting there. My wife and I sat down with some great friends and we're sitting there and right, the show starts and I find myself in that kind of consumeristic mindset. I mean, right, we all do that at some point, right? You're there to see a show, to consume it. And so I'm kind of watching it and oh, it's kind of good. I'm watching, I'm looking at the audience to see how people are responding Maybe, you know, I was critiquing it a little bit. You know, not like I'm the expert, but sometimes we become experts in things we're not experts about. But something happened at the very beginning of the second act. I went from this consumeristic kind of uh, mindset to I found myself being transported into the story, into this relationship between Edward and Will between a dad who loves his son so, so much 
And the tension in that relationship as boy grows to be a man and becomes a father. And I found myself thinking about those moments in my life, the tension between me and my parents that were formed and how we navigated through those seasons of tension. And and as you saw Edwards and Will's relationship separate and the divide became greater and greater and greater, I thought about the danger for me as dad with my girls to not let this divide happen. And what am I going to do as a dad to try to, to, to mitigate this divide that, that seems to happen between parents and kids as they grow older? And how do I do that? And then you watch Edward as not only he grows older, but yet his health takes a turn. And I started thinking through just the frailty of life and that at one point, me as son, I'm going to have to walk beside my parents as they age and their health takes a turn for the worse. And and then you saw the love between a father and a son. Love at times that was filled with tension. Love at times that was divided. Love at times that was misdirected. Love at times that was confused. But the love kept them coming back together. There's nothing like storytelling to connect into our hearts and minds. There's nothing like story that will move and motivate someone. There's nothing like storytelling to cause you to sit back and truly reflect. There's so much power in story. And here's what I know. For all of us, every one of us, We have a story. You have a story. I have a story. You might really like your story, or maybe you really don't like your story. You might think your story's interesting, or if you're like me, there's so many times where I'm sitting listening to someone's story, and I'm like, oh, that's a great story. I wish my story was like like that. I wish I could tell a story like that. I wish my story was filled with that. And I find myself sometimes just wishing my story was just a little different. And not only does everyone have a story, but every story has the potential to be epic. Oh, wouldn't we all love to have an epic story? If. If. Oh, we'll get to the if in a moment. Because the if is going to be critical. Because not only does everyone have a story, I really believe that every story can be epic. If. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at a guy named Josiah. Maybe you've never heard of this guy named Josiah. Maybe you have studied about Josiah before. But we're going to be looking at his story and primarily how his story really connects with our story and what we can learn from his story and how we can apply his story into the storyline of our lives. But before we jump into Josiah's story, it's just critical that we kind of set up kind of the historical timeline uh, preceding Josiah so we understand because we are only going to get a snapshot into Josiah's life. 
It's not like we have chapters and chapters and chapters in the Bible about Josiah. It's a pretty brief snapshot. So let's set up the history leading up. And I was thinking about where to start, and I figured a great, great place to start was all the way back at the beginning. So we start with God, and uh, God created the heavens and the earth, everything in the earth. He created man and woman in his image, and man and woman started to have kids, and those kids had kids, and those kids had their kids, and the population started to expand. And all of a sudden, one day, God comes to Abraham, maybe you've heard of him, Father Abraham, and God taps Abraham on the shoulder and says, hey, hey Abraham. Uh, I got this epic storyline for you. You're not only going to have kids. You're going to be the father of nations. Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars. Now that's epic. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. And what happens with sons or just siblings, jealousy started to emerge within those sons. And all of a sudden, 11 were really jealous about the one that kind of had a right to be. And so brothers do what brothers do. They took that one brother and beat him up a little bit and threw him down a well. Because that's what brothers do. But then they go, now what? I mean, we can't leave our brother down there. I mean, that's, that's horrendous, right? Just to leave him there. So they had an idea. They're like, let's just sell him into slavery. It feels better than just dropping him in a well. So they sold him into slavery. Joseph goes to Egypt. He's a slave. He gets thrown in jail. And then he has this epic storyline where he finds himself coming out of slavery, coming out of jail, and now he's in a position of power and authority in Pharaoh's kingdom. Famine hits the land. The loving brothers journey to Egypt not knowing whatever happened to their long-lost brother. And God brings these 12 brothers back together again. And they all decide to move and establish their families, now growing families, there in Egypt. Hundreds of years go by. And this group, this family, turns into the 12 tribes of Israel. And now it becomes this nation. And now a new pharaoh's in power. And he's looking at this small family that's now a massive nation going, oh no, this is dangerous. So pharaohs do what pharaohs do. They decide, he decides to put them all into captivity, make them slaves. Because he couldn't have another power raising up within his kingdom. And so they become slaves. For 400 years, They were slaves. And then one day, God comes down and taps Moses on the shoulder. He says, hey, Moses, you need to go free my people from Egypt. And Moses did what all of us would have done. Nope. And God has a very convincing way about him. And Moses becomes the reluctant hero. Oh, that makes for a great storyline, doesn't it? The reluctant hero. So Moses goes... God shows up in a significant way. And with God's leadership and God's power, Moses leads the people out of Egypt. And what we know is at this point, Israel numbers somewhere around uh, 1.5 to over 2 million people. This is a massive nation. And remember, for 400 years, they've been slaves. Now they're free. And so they start walking, wandering, discussing 
the most important question that this new formed nation could ever, ever ask. Now what? For 400 years, they didn't have to think. For 400 years, they didn't have a voice. For 400 years, they were slaves of Pharaoh. Now they were free. So Moses comes down, taps, or God comes down, taps Moses on the shoulder, says, hey, Moses, I have a new way of leadership. It's different than any other kingdom, any other nation around. Hey, Moses, I'm going to give you the law. And the law is going to govern the people. And Moses, you're going to kind of be the first judge to help me lead the people. And after Moses, there was more judges and prophets that God used. And not until the American Revolutionary War with this concept of a people, a nation being governed by law come back into view. And for 500 years, Israel was governed. God is their king. Judges and prophets being the voice of God. And the people were led and governed by God's law, his words. Now, over time, the people got a little restless because they started looking around at other nations. And they started noticing that other nations had a king. And they started thinking to themselves, oh, what would it be like to have a king? And so they started saying, hey, we, we want one of them. We want a king. And so God sent a prophet, Samuel, and Samuel's like, no, you don't want a king. And the people said, no, we want a king. And Samuel's like, no, you don't want a king. They're like, no, we really want a king. And so Samuel's like, why do you want a king? And they started saying, because look at the other nations. When you have a king, kings have a castle. And then we get flags and banners. And then we have nation pride. And then we have a mighty army. And then we get a dragon. Okay, maybe not the dragon. But we want that. Look at the other nations. We want a king. Samuel's like, no, you don't want a king. You got God. You got God. You don't want a king. So the people are like, well, why don't we want a king, Samuel? Samuel says, because kings do what kings do. Kings always do what kings do. Kings raise taxes. And Kings take your boys and put them in their armies and send them to war to conquer more land for the king. And kings leverage their power and authority to take whatever they want whenever they want. Kings do what kings do. You don't want a king. You got God. Now, let's pause here. We're getting to Josiah. I promise you that. All of us, somewhere within us, all of us have a part of us that we want to be king, don't we? I mean, you think about a king, they're autonomous and they're unaccountable. And there's a part within us, how big the part you can determine, but there's a part in us that we want to be autonomous and we want to be unaccountable. It's why we sit there and we look at whether, whatever situation, we're like, man, if I was in charge, I'd make this decision. If I was in control, I'd do it this way. If I didn't have to report to, it'd be so much better. If I was king and I can make 
all the decisions and not be accountable for anything. If I was in charge, oh, life would be so much better. But yet there's another side of us. Both intuitively we know this, but also as we look back on the storylines of history, what happens when people are unaccountable and autonomous? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And I think all of us internally know that, man, if we were king, there might be a season where we leverage that power in a good way. But there's that other side of our heart that we would start leveraging. Why? Because kings do what kings do. Well, finally, God relented and said, fine. You want a king? I'll give you a king. So a king was chosen. His name was uh, Saul. And Saul was a mighty king. He looked like a king. He talked like a king. He acted like a king. He smelled like a king. I don't know what kings smell like. But he was a kingly figure and he did horrible things. So God said, hey, allow me to pick your king. So God set out not to pick a king that looked like a king, talked like a king, was perceived on the outward appearance like a king. God found a king where his heart beat for God. He found David. And if you're from a a Jewish uh, faith background, you know David. I mean, that is the king of Israel. The city of David, the star of David. David was a king who loved God and followed God and worshiped God in his heart, beat in rhythm with God's. But David was a king. And kings do what kings do. And David still had the list of things that he chose to do that dishonored God and angered God and disappointed God. He sinned against God. David handed the throne over to his son Solomon. Solomon was another mighty king. He built the temple. And Solomon's heart beat in rhythm with God's heart and he loved God and he served God and he honored God. He he walked in the footsteps of God, but guess what Solomon was? He was a king and kings do what kings do. And he had his list like his father did of things that angered God and disappointed God. He sinned against God. And then Solomon handed the kingdom to his son, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was the first king to do evil in the eyes of God. He didn't walk with God. And Rehoboam decided to keep all the taxes that his dad Solomon had put into place to build the temple. Now the temple's built, but Rehoboam liked the money coming in. So he kept those taxes in place and that upset the people because the temple's now built. And Rehoboam started to show favoritism to a couple of the tribes, the tribes he liked more. And because of his leadership and him being a king, doing what kings do, the kingdom separated into two different kingdoms. We now have Israel, which is the north, consisting of 10 tribes, and Judah in the south, two tribes. Now, if you've studied through the Old Testament and you bounce into First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles, and if you're, you haven't been aware of this, I, I'm sure it got really confusing. 
Because all of a sudden you're like, wait, wait, there's multiple kings and what's Israel? I thought Israel was all of the tribes, but now there's Israel and there's Judah. And then sometimes instead of saying Judah, they say Jerusalem, but Jerusalem was the capital of Judah and it can get real confusing. Well, th- this is why it is. Because Rehoboam split these kingdoms. Rehoboam becomes king of Judah. And then we have two different kingdoms. Now on the Israel side, uh, out of the 19 kings, uh, all 19 were evil. That's a horrible percentage, right? Horrible. And, uh, and so zero good. And uh, somewhere between 722 and 720 BC, uh, this Assyrian empire got tired of them and God used them and they came in and just wiped them out. They, they did what they did to so many different nations. They would just conquer a nation, take all the people and integrate them back into their culture. And so this north tribe, Israel, became what was called the lost tribes. Now, Judah was better, right? Uh, they had 20 kings, 12 did evil, but eight good. That, I mean, it's, it's headed in the right trajectory. And, um, and uh, Josiah was part of this. And in 589 to 586 BC, Babylon came, came in and did the same thing the Syrians did with Israel, so Josiah, we find, in this lineage of Judah, or in the line of Judah. He was the 16th king, so there's 15 kings before him. Rehoboam was the first one of Judah. And then there's four kings after Josiah. And Josiah was the last king who was considered to be good, to do right in the eyes of God. Now, if you're, if you're an avid a student of history... It's important to kind of know what's going on in the world in this time. During King Josiah's reign between 640 and 608 BC, the Syrian empire was coming to an end. The last great Assyrian king, his kingdom, his reign uh, comes to an end. And then the several kings after him never got the power back. There's a lot of internal strife. So this is happening because Judah is a vassal kingdom underneath Assyria. So we find this happening. It's going to help us as we move into the rest of Josiah's story. And as Assyria kind of brings their storyline to an end, Babylon, which is actually this collective of all these other tribes and nations, came together and we see their power rise as they control the region. And this is all going on during Josiah's reign. Now with this as a backdrop, This is what we discover about Josiah, the boy king. In 2 Kings, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidah, daughter of Adiah, and she was from Boscoth. Now, what's great about, uh, as we get into 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, and uh, uh, maybe I should make this, uh, this point to help out. 1 and 2 Kings was written by one author, and 1 and 2 Chronicles was written by another author. But they tell about the same kings and the same storyline, but from different perspectives. So we got from one author, First and Second Kings, telling about this history of the kings of Israel. And then we have First and Second Chronicles that's going to add different information to help us understand the storyline. But we also have in the Old Testament what's called the prophets. And the prophets were prophesying during the reign of these kings. So we get three great different perspectives into this one moment of history and we'll see all of them come to play over the next four weeks. 
So we find out some important information, who the king was, Josiah. He was eight when he uh, came into power. Uh, He reigned in Jerusalem. So here we go. We know that Jerusalem was a capital of Judah, the southern kingdom. So he's over the southern kingdom. Uh, He reigned for 31 years. And then we find out some family information. It goes on, and this is the second very important piece of information that we find out in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, whether they did right or evil in the eyes of God. So we find out that Josiah uh, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. Then the author of Second uh, uh, Kings, he jumps into the 18th year of his reign. So we miss 18 years and you sit there and you're like, well, what happened? I mean, it's fascinating that he was eight when he came to power, but now he's 26. Well, what happened in that time frame? So we go from 2 Kings, and let's look at Chronicles. Because again, both of those books are telling the storyline of the kings. So we go to 2 Chronicles, and we find some of the same information. He was eight. Who The king was Josiah. He was eight. Uh, Jerusalem, 31 years. What, what the chronicler chronicler leaves out is some of the family information, right? He just leaves that out for whatever reason. We go into verse two, he did right in the eyes of the Lord. So that lines up. And then we get into verse 30 and something different happens. In the eighth year of his reign, he was still young, right? In second Kings, we jump to his 18th year, but now we're at his eighth year. And so we're going to get the snapshot into him, Josiah, at age 16. And you sit there going, man, king at age eight? Like I just sit there going, my daughter's seven, almost eight. I could not fathom her being, you know, king, right? It'd be hilarious. I mean, it would be kind of humorous, and it would just be very dysfunctional, right? And then you think about a king at age 16. I don't think it gets much better. But then, right, as we look at history, this was common. You know, King Tut was nine. And the great pharaoh Ramesses, right, he became prince regent at age 14 and then became pharaoh in his latter teens. So this just follows the storyline of history. But what we discover in year eight is one of the most significant components of the story of Josiah. This is what we discovered. He began to seek the God of his father, David. Well, to understand the religious landscape, I mean, leading up to this moment and during this moment, when God went to Moses and tapped Moses on the shoulder and said, hey, 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 here's the law or here's my words, the religious landscape at that point was polytheistic. The Egyptians, polytheistic. The ancient Sumerians, polytheistic. The Assyrians, the the Canaanites, the Babylonians, they're all polytheistic. They worship uh, creation. They worship the sun god and the water god and the tree god and the aardvark god. I don't know if they had that. But they, they, they worshiped all these gods attached to creation. And when God goes to Moses and says, I am the Lord your God, you will have no other gods before me. The backdrop was all these other nations worshiping all of these other gods. And God would say, no, 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 no. Don't worship these gods of creation. Worship the God who's the creator. And one of the reasons why 
why God didn't want a king to sit on the throne over Israel? Because kings do what kings do. And how can you be king on a throne and not be accountable and not be autonomous? Because kings do what they want to do. And God just knew if a king was sitting on the throne in Israel, how in the world can they personally just become king when God is leader? So for a king to do what a king has to do, you have to remove God as creator, God as ultimate authority. God is a person you're accountable to. And then you bring in all these other gods. So that you, and of yourself, can be God-like. See, in the Bible, when it talks about seeking God, it's this conscious decision with your mind and with your, your heart to discover who God is. And Josiah, at age 16, something within him within his mind, within his intellect, and within his heart. He started saying, there, there must be more than what I see around this kingdom. With all these prophets for Baal and these asterisk poles and all these disgusting cult practices, there's something within him that moved within him to start to seek God. What was it? We're not sure. Was it someone who started to build a relationship with him and started to talk with him about the God of David? Maybe. Was it his own intellectual emo emotional pursuit as he looked at, at the absurdity of this polytheistic world of religion and spirit, spirituality? Was it that? Maybe. Or was it him sitting on his throne? Big fire in the fireplace? And people around him telling stories of old. Stories of the mighty warrior, King David. The mighty king that conquered the Philistines. The mighty king that went to war, went to battle. The mighty king that built this mighty nation. Was it the stories of David's son, Solomon, who was the wealthiest of kings and the wisest of kings? And as he listened to stories, you'd hear about this God. Not God's, but God of David. And I wonder if, as they were telling stories, they shared about the story about King David handing the throne off to his son. Because what we know in history a lot is we know how kings get into power those stories are told. And we know how kings end their reign. We know those stories. Sometimes we're not sure what happens in between, but usually storytellers love to tell how a king comes into power and how a king loses his power. And we find in First Chronicles this moment recorded about King David handing the power, the throne over to his son Solomon. And I just wonder if this story was told. 
how mighty King David handed over the power to his son. And this is what we discover in 1 Chronicles. So now I charge you in the sight of all Israel and of the assembly of the Lord and in the hearing of our God. This is King David talking. This entire assembly of people standing, sitting, gathered together for this historic moment of father handing the throne over to son. Not in a, a violent upheaval, not in a coup, not in a death. But a father handing it to a son? Ah, oh, that's different than most storylines. And then he says, be careful to follow all the commands of the Lord your God, that you may possess this good land and pass it on as an inheritance to your descendants forever. And then he turns to his son Solomon. He says this, Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind for the Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought. And if you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Whatever it was, Josiah started to seek God. It was both an intellectual pursuit but it was also an emotional pursuit. And here's what I know. You might have gotten lost in your intellectual pursuit of God. And maybe that's what you struggle through. And maybe God wants you to seek him more on the emotional side. Or maybe you spent so much time wrapped up in your emotional pursuit, the heart pursuit of God, and God wants you to pursue him intellectually. And you see, that's the power of seeking God. It's a both and It's seeking God intellectually and emotionally. Trying to understand and grasp the creator God. But yet we have these moments inside our heart that we try to articulate with our words and sometimes it's so hard to articulate. These moments that we just feel we're being drawn, these moments where we feel like, okay, God, I know you're up there intellectually. I got questions and I can't connect all the dots and I have doubts, but there's something within me. But wherever you find yourself in your spiritual journey, the step to intentionally seek God will be the most important pursuit of your life. During this series, we're going to share with you some stories of people that have been willing just to kind of open up their lives. And we didn't purposely go out to find the epic stories within Renaissance. We just asked people to say, hey, will you share your story? And this week, I was working on the, the message for today, and I was really getting to Josiah's story. And I finally opened up my email, and I read the transcript of Nancy's story. And in a way that only God can do what God does. I realized that the storyline of Josiah, this boy king, just starts to lay over Nancy's story. That thousands of years separate these two people, but yet the moment to seek God was so aligned. Here's Nancy's story. 
My parents were married teenagers when I was born, and by the time I was four months old, I was living with my very poor grandparents in some uh, pretty bad places in northern Maine. It really wasn't an ideal situation, and lots of bad things happened to me. There was domestic violence and kids left to their own devices. My life was pretty unpredictable and scary. I was really constantly filled with fear and had nightmares. When I was about seven, one of the many aunts that I was often passed around to took me to a vacation Bible school in Southern Maine, where most of my family lived. There were some missionaries there, the Lawsons, who had served in the Philippines. One day they described how a large storm came through their village and they had hidden under the dining room table all night. They'd prayed and sung hymns until they fell asleep. In the morning when they woke up, the house was gone. The roof, the walls, everything but the dining room. I remember thinking, that's what I need. A God who will take care of me and protect me from the bad things that had already happened and that might happen in the future. The Lawsons quoted John 3.16, a verse I knew, but that day it meant something totally different to me. For God so loved Nancy that he sent his only son, that if Nancy believed, I got it. God supernaturally intervened and brought an understanding and desire that had never been there before. I returned home to Northern Maine and immediately set out to find a church. I was seven and I knocked on doors and interviewed pastors until I found the right one. Each week I walked to church and read my Bible and prayed. I prayed for many things, but mostly I prayed that when I grew up, I'd have a normal family. One where it was obvious who the mother and father were and which children belonged. I never wanted my children to struggle over the simple question of mother's name or number of siblings. My grandparents and I eventually moved to Southern Maine where I lived among my father's family. I still only saw him maybe once a year and I never saw my mother even though she lived a few miles away. I was surrounded by my cousins and second cousins and aunts and uncles, none of whom had ever been to college and most hadn't even graduated from high school. Many were into drugs and alcohol and other unhelpful activities. Lots had babies in their teens. There were all kinds of abuse going on. But God protected me from all this chaos and messiness. He gave me different desires and filled my life with people who actually helped to give me guidance and encouragement. Somehow I made it into Princeton and got involved with a student ministry where I was mentored and taught the Bible. It was there that I met my future husband and it was there that the prayer of a seven-year-old girl was answered. One time, a friend from college introduced me to her mother-in-law and told her the story of my upbringing. This woman said to me, isn't it great what a good education can do? You're here at Princeton. I was floored. I couldn't believe she thought education had brought me out of the mess of my background. Education would have never kept me off drugs and out of inappropriate relationships. My cousins all attended the same schools I did. We all came from the same genes. The difference is God. God, not education, saved me. Education, not God, saved me. See, everyone has a story. You have a story. And your story 
has the potential to be epic. If. Oh, here's the if. If God is the hero of the story, not you. Because what God can do with you, with your life, when God's the hero, what God can do within you and take your storyline in his hands, that's epic. Now think about Nancy's story. The moment for her to seek God. I mean, I love the moment. I mean, seeking God, I mean, she took it to a whole new level when she walked around at age seven interviewing pastors. I'm sure those pastors still talk about that. This kid came to my door to interview me. But that's seeking God. It's taking steps to emotionally and intellectually discover who God is. And if, if you've been a Christ follower for decades, that pursuit to seek God is still as real. And you know that. So this week, one, one simple question for you to uh, wrestle around intellectually and in your heart. Who's the hero of your story? Who's the hero of your story? And then maybe, maybe you put it on your calendar so it's a little reminder when you wake up before your day moves at mock speed. Maybe you just add, seek God. And you start your day with a mindset, with an intentionality, and whatever that means for you spiritually, that you take steps to seek God. Because I think about Nancy's story and what happened within her heart and within her mind as just a small child. And you see, for my wife and I, we're here in large part. We moved, left our family and friends in large part because the storyline of Nancy, because we realized Renaissance, the story started so long ago that the storyline of Renaissance was being orchestrated by God in an epic tale that can only be scripted by God's hands alone. My wife and I wanted to be part of a storyline that was being scripted and written by God. This week, who's the hero of your story? And be intentional. Seek God. I'm going to pray. And uh, after service, Rich and I are going to be down here. And uh, we just want to be available. If you have a question about uh, uh, what I shared today, please ask. Or maybe if you're just going through a, a moment in life and you just want someone to pray uh, with you, for you, uh, again, we just want to be available. So uh, drop on by. If you just want to say, hey, hey, we like that as well. So uh, let me pray. Lord, I thank you for our time together today. Lord, I thank you for uh, Josiah's story. That step at age 16 for him to take the step to seek you. And Lord, I thank you for Nancy being open to share the story of her life and what you have done, what you have done, Lord, Because her story is epic because it's in your hands. You know, I pray. Amen. God bless. Have an amazing week.